Hello and welcome to another episode of Urban Legends and Mythologies. On this episode, we are discussing what is probably the greatest origin story ever told, at least from the perspective of an American. If you live in literally any other country in the world, it's just another story. However, this is a story which really defines our culture and what it means to every one of us to be an American. This is the story of our foundation myth, our revolution. And to us Americans, our revolution means everything. It's one of the earliest stories we hear, and it truly defines us as a culture, which is why we are the way we are. It's ingrained in our very DNA. And as we are only about two weeks away from the 4th of July, our Independence Day, I really want to stop and just kind of remind everybody of why we celebrate that day. It's not just fireworks and barbecues. Our liberty came at an enormous cost, and it was a very long struggle. However, from that struggle emerged what in my opinion is one of the greatest nations to exist on this planet since the Roman Empire. So join me while I suck down this delicious Rheingeist knowledge from, well, Rheingeist Brewery here in Cincinnati, Ohio. And as always, let's start at the beginning. Well, close to the beginning. If we really wanted to start at the beginning, I'd go all the way back to Jamestown, but I'm not doing that. So let's start in Boston in the 1760s. So by this time, we are about seven generations since the founding of Jamestown and since the founding of Plymouth and all that fun stuff. So we've been in America for quite a while. However, we were not yet Americans. We were still considered British subjects. And while a lot of people in these 13 colonies considered themselves Englishmen, in Great Britain, they really weren't even considered subjects or Englishmen. They were considered second-class citizens, filthy colonists. That's all we were. We had no real representation in Parliament. However, we were subject to all of their crazy schemes. However, up until about the middle of the 18th century, we actually had it pretty good as just colonists. We only paid a quarter of the taxes that an average Englishman would pay in England. We actually had more children. We had a lower infant death mortality rate. We were healthier, and we were actually two inches taller than our contemporaries in England. So the colonists had it pretty good. And for the most part, the colonies were largely already kind of independent in nature. They basically governed themselves. America was considered the place to go for business, for opportunities, for religious freedoms, and to get away from all the craziness of Europe. However, despite that, we were still subjects of the crown and subject to the rules and laws of England. And while in the past we had seen little flare-ups and stuff, it always kind of ended with, good on you, it's okay, we'll still have kind of a light-handed approach to the colonies. Go on, do your thing, make us money. However, it's after the French and Indian War ends, and subsequently the Royal Proclamation of 1763 is enacted, when things start to really ramp up the tension here in the colonies. Now, the thing with the French and Indian War is it left England with a lot of debt. And the proclamation of 1763 
that was created to kind of quell some violence that was going on between settlers who were pushing into the back country, who were basically pushing into Appalachia, what will become West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, well, southeastern Ohio, western Pennsylvania, stuff like that. And that proclamation basically said, you can't settle beyond this line, and it actually would lead to people who were settled beyond this line actually being forcibly evicted from their homes and their little farms that they were scratching out by the British soldiers themselves. You know, you're in violation of this proclamation line. So, yeah, you know that house, that cabin you just built and that little farm you're scratching out? Well, yeah, you can't live there anymore. Go back to Boston or wherever. So that alone starts ramping up a little bit of tension on the frontier. But it's really how Britain decides to handle its own internal debt problems, mostly war debt, which ramps up tensions throughout places like Boston and New York, especially Boston, which becomes the flashpoint of the revolution. So Parliament, in all their wisdom throughout the 1760s, they start enacting all these different taxes on the colonies in order to basically boost government revenues. Now remember, up to this time, the colonies were a place where we only paid about a quarter of the taxes that the average English person would pay. Well, however, they kind of go a little crazy with the amount of taxes they levy on these colonies. So the first of these unpopular acts is known as the Sugar Act. It's passed in April 1764, and it's essentially a tax on sugar or molasses, which is used to make rum. Now, sugar was a high-value cash crop here in the New World, so imposing a tax on that, a rather hefty tax, was seen as something that would be very unpopular. And then later in 1764, Parliament decides to pass the Currency Act, which actually prohibited the colonies from issuing their own paper currency. Now, here's a little side note about currency in the colonies. In the colonies, they basically had to issue their own currency. You couldn't use the British pound in your currency. So a lot of people in the colonies, they would actually use the Spanish dollar or they would issue their own paper currency. Now, Parliament basically did this as a way to keep their own merchants from being paid in this paper currency that was being issued by the colonies because it could rapidly depreciate, and it usually would rapidly depreciate. But essentially all it did really was just screw up the monetary system that was in place at the time. But those pale in comparison to the infamous Stamp Act, which was passed um, almost a year later in... 1765. So in March 1765, Parliament passes this act, and it's mostly to raise money to pay for troops that are already stationed in America. They pass this act to basically put a tax on pretty much every scrap of paper that would be used in day-to-day commerce or business. Now this tax, it really puts Americans over the edge. You're already taxing our sugar. You're already trying to basically say our money is not going to be accepted in commerce. Now you're telling me that any piece of paper that I use to conduct business on, I have to pay a tax on that? So this sparks off violent protests across the colonies. And Parliament's response to these protests are, we don't care. We impose the tax and you're going to pay it. Followed up by 
the Quartering Act, which comes later that year, in which the colonies were now required to provide food and housing for British troops. No questions asked. So if there's a British soldier and he comes up to your house and says, hey, I need a place to stay for the night, you're going to feed me, you're going to give me your best bedroom, and you know, you're going to provide for my horses and my men, you had to do it. You didn't have a choice. However, we do send our message, and in 1766, they do repeal the Stamp Act. However, the very next year, they introduce the Townsend Act, which basically place all these insane tariffs and taxes on everything in the colonies. And Parliament asserts that it has the full power and authority to make laws and statutes. And once again, we have no choice. We have to accept it because we have no voice in Parliament. And with us basically pushing back and protesting and asserting that we should have some kind of say in the taxes that are imposed on us, by the end of the 1760s, we are a nation under complete military occupation. They really ramp up the presence of soldiers, especially in Boston. If you went into Boston, you had soldiers marching everywhere, and they could basically, they were free to do whatever they want. Boston was essentially a city under military occupation. There was like one British soldier for like every four citizens. It was pretty crazy. So on March 5th, 1770, an incident takes place in this military-occupied city. A group of protesters, they basically form this angry mob. It starts with an argument between a wigmaker's apprentice and a soldier on duty. So essentially what happens is on the evening of March 5th, Private Hugh White, he's a private in the British Army, who's occupying Boston at this time. He's standing on guard duty outside the Boston Custom House on King Street, known as State Street today. And a wig maker's apprentice named Edward Garrett calls out to Captain Lieutenant John Goldfinch, who's also there. He's accusing him of refusing to pay a bill that's due to Garrick's master. So considering this is Boston, it's probably like, Oi, won't you pay a fucking bill? To which he replies, Fuck you, I already paid that bill yesterday. And I don't know why my fake Boston accent sounds like some kind of Australian bogan accent, but I'm just going to go with it. It's my show, I can do whatever I want. Private White, who's standing there, he gets in, he's like, I, you, you should be more respectful of an officer, you dumb fuck. And then Garrick's all like, fuck you, you want to start something? Come on, you dumb fuck, come on, hit me, hit me, I dare you, I fucking dare you. So at this point, Private White, he takes the butt of his rifle and he just cracks him across the head with it. And this draws in an even larger crowd and it starts this kind of angry mob in this city that's already at the boiling point when it comes to tension. Especially from being under occupation and having to deal with these idiotic taxes that are being imposed on them against their will. So at this point, like, tensions are boiling, the crowd's getting bigger, it's like, there's like 50 Bostonians there, and there's like nine of these British soldiers, and they're all screaming insults back and forth, they're like, fuck you, and the other one's like, fuck you, mate, and they're like, fuck you, I dare you to shoot that gun, come on, fucking do it, and he's like, fuck you, I dare you to come over there and hit me with a club, fucking do it, stop throwing fucking rocks, and they're like, fuck you, fuck you, back and forth and back and forth. 
And then Crispus Attucks, he's our, he's right at the front, and he's like throwing rocks at this one sentry, and he's like, "Fuck you! I dare you to fire, motherfucker! Fuck you!" Fucking red coat pussy ass bitch. Go on, fire that fucking gun. I fucking dare you. And by this time, the crowd's grown to like 400 people. And there's like nine of these British soldiers. And they're in like this semicircular kind of thing. And they've got their rifles leveled. They're getting ready to fire. All the time, they're being hurled insults. Fuck you, fuck you. Throwing rocks and clubs and whatever. So it's at this time when an object strikes a private Montgomery and it knocks him off his feet, knocks him down. He picks up his musket and he screams, Damn you, fire! And he fires his musket into the crowd. And this leads to the other nine people in the crowd firing their muskets as well. Crispus Attucks is the first one to die for liberty in Boston on that night. He's the first one killed, along with four others, and several others who would be wounded, and a few would die later of their injuries. This incident goes down as the Bloody Massacre, as we call today the Boston Massacre, and it becomes the rallying cry for the movement for liberty. After this, Paul Revere, the famous silversmith, he goes on to create that engraving which ends up on every newspaper in the colonies within the next few weeks. We gotta remember in the colonies, the great Ben Franklin is actually to credit for this. We have one of the fastest news networks in the world at the time through this like night riding kind of piggybacking system that was going on like it was part it was basically the mail service but it was also like newspapers and stuff so a person in boston and a person in like georgia or i guess north carolina or you know wherever you know they could read the exact same article from the exact same paper within days of each other so news traveled fast in the colonies and now these tensions have reached the breaking point. It's on. The revolution has started. However, at that point, no major fighting has broken out yet. It's actually not for another couple of years when we would see major fighting. However, at this time, events are happening. There are various riots happening over these dumbass taxes. Samuel Adams, he organizes the Committees of Correspondence, which is kind of a secret group of patriots to communicate with each other and it's over the subsequent year or so when the trial happens concerning the men who fired into the crowd at the boston massacre and those guys are actually all acquitted which i'm sure was not a popular decision but a lot of what was happening at the time were not popular decisions however it does show John Adams' propensity for being a great lawyer because he was actually the lawyer who defended these guys who committed this massacre and got them off. So, if anything, Adams was a great lawyer. <laughs> but it's during these next two years, up until 1773, where tensions are still high. However, life goes on. Everybody's day-to-day -day life just goes on as normal. And at one point, Parliament does actually repeal some of these dumbass taxes. However, in late 1773, tensions would rise again because in May of 1773, Parliament decides to pass the infamous Tea Act. Now, this Tea Act would lead to an infamous political protest on December 16, 1773 by the Sons of Liberty in Boston. On that night, they dressed up as Native Americans, rather poorly, and 
got onto the ships and threw every chest of tea that was being shipped into Boston Harbor, into that harbor. It was over like a million dollars worth of tea. Now, the British government, they considered this protest to be an act of treason. Out and out treason. And they responded harshly. They shut down Boston Harbor. To put that into context, Boston Harbor was the busiest harbor in America at the time. Busier than New York, busier than Charlestown, busier than New Orleans. It was the busiest harbor at the time on the North American continent. And the British shut it down. And furthermore, by the time word reached England in March of 1774, England responds by punishing Massachusetts Colony by passing the so-called Intolerable Acts. These acts include the Boston Poor Act, the Administration of Justice Act, the Massachusetts Government Act, a Second Quartering Act, and something called the Quebec Act. So to break it down, the Poor Act was the act that shut down Boston Harbor, the busiest harbor in North America. So it's like destroying trade. And they're shutting it down until the citizens of Boston essentially pay back the damages from the Tea Party, that million dollars in lost tea. They want their money back. Next, the Government Act, it actually revokes Massachusetts's charter and restricts town meetings and brings Massachusetts under direct control of the Parliament and King. The Administration Justice Act, it basically creates corruption. It allows for British officials to basically do whatever they want and get away with it because they, quote, can't get a fair trial in Massachusetts. And the Quebec Act actually tried to expand that province, that colony, into basically what would become Ohio today, which a lot of Americans felt that that voided the claims of the newly founded Ohio Company, which was seeking settlement in the great state of Ohio. Now, it's really these acts which would spark the war. Many Americans saw it as a violation of their constitutional rights, their natural rights, and a violation of their colonial charters. So it was seen as a direct threat to liberties across all of British America, and it actually leads to the First Continental Congress. Now, to be honest with the First Continental Congress, not a whole lot gets done. The basic gist of it is that they enter into basically a military alliance, saying that an attack on one colony is an attack on all colonies. Kind of like an early form of NATO today, because we got to remember at the time, the colonies were 13 separate colonies, 13 separate countries. We weren't united yet. However, that would come in the subsequent years. But right now at this time, you know, they're enacting this kind of precursor to NATO kind of idea. An attack on one colony is an attack on all colonies. And it's during this time when the militias are starting to get together and train because they're revolutionaries and they know that there's a war coming. It's in the air. You can you could cut the tension with a knife. You know it's there. The British are coming and we have to defend our homeland. And it all culminates on April 19th, 1775. A shot heard around the world. The infamous battles at Lexington and Concord. So with these battles, we need a little bit of context. So in 1775, the British determined that the state of Massachusetts is in a state of rebellion. Now this time, about 700 British Army regulars in Boston 
are under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith, and they were given orders to capture and destroy a colonial military supply depot. It's like the supply depot for the local militias. However, luckily for us, Patriot leaders got the word a few weeks before, and they were able to go to that depot and get rid of all that supplies and disperse it out and hide it from the British so those pricks didn't find it when they came to seize that warehouse that next day. Now, on the night before the battles, warning of the British expedition had rapidly been sent from Boston to all the militias in the area by several riders, including Paul Revere and Samuel Prescott, with information about the British plans. It was the one-if-by-land, two-if-by-sea thing. You know, this is where Paul Revere makes his famous midnight ride, and he's telling everyone, to arms, to arms, they're coming, they're coming. So, just as the sun was rising in Lexington, BAM! The first shot was fired. Now, nobody knows who fired that first shot. Me, personally, I think it was a misfire that got everything riled up. And personally, I think that misfire came from our side because you gotta remember, this is a very green militia. They haven't seen a lot of action going up against a world power, an army of veteran soldiers who've been seeing action all over the world for like years and years. So I think that misfire came from the militiamen that were there at that battle, but I digress. However, after that first volley, eight militiamen are killed and only one British soldier is killed. So at this point, this big red wall of British regulars, they're marching, they're heading forward, and we break ranks and we fall back because we're vastly outnumbered. And the British regulars, they march on to Concord where they break up into companies and they're searching for supplies, they're searching for these guns. They're coming to seize our weapons. So now we're in Concord and we're at Northbridge and approximately 400 militiamen engage 100 regulars from three companies of the King's troops at about 11 a.m., resulting in casualties on both sides. The outnumbered regulars fell back from the bridge and rejoined the main body of British forces in Concord. So now the British forces, they begin their return march to Boston after completing their search for military supplies and coming up with nothing. And as they're doing this, more militiamen are joining. They're hearing gunfire erupting, and they're joining, and they shadow the march all the way back to Boston. They're in the woods. They're taking pot shots at everybody, preferably officers, because that's what I'd be doing. I'd be taking pot shots at the officers, and they shadow the march all the way back to Boston. Now, this return, this British regulars, this march, they eventually meet up with Brigadier General Hugh Percy, and he provides them with reinforcements, and they're able to march back with 1,700 men to Boston. However, the whole time we're out there, we're picking them off. We are shadowing the whole march as they make this tactical withdrawal. Eventually, they reach the safety of Charlestown, which is near Boston. However, the militias then blockaded the narrow land access to Charlestown and Boston, starting the infamous Siege of Boston. Siege would last 11 months until the British are forced to withdraw their troops up to Nova Scotia. Now, after this, Fort Ticonderoga, it's captured by Ethan Allen, Benedict Arnold, and the Green Mountain Boys. And then the Second Continental Congress comes in, and they formally declare the Continental Army on June 14th, 1775. And that is the birth of the modern U.S. Army on that date. They also, on that date, appoint 
General George Washington as commanding general of the Continental Army. Now, to this day, some people argue that Washington probably wasn't the man for the job. It would have better been suited for somebody like Gates or even Benedict Arnold. However, at the time, George Washington was present. He was there, and they appointed him to be the commanding general of the Continental Army. So on July 2nd, he takes command of the army in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and gets to work. And the army Washington gets is a ragtag group of underfunded, underpaid, undersupplied men. Some of them don't even have shoes. They're filthy. They're just your everyday guys like me or you. They grabbed a musket and they went to war with almost no training. But they had a cause, they rallied to it, they fight for it, and they died for it. Now in August, on August 23rd, the king, he issues a proclamation stating that the colonies are in rebellion. And it's like, well, no, duh. A couple other things that happened this year was the Continental Navy was established by the Second Continental Congress on October 13th. Lord Dunmore, colonial governor of Virginia, offers freedom to any slave who is willing to abandon their patriot masters and fight for the British. And then on November 10th, the Second Continental Congress establishes the United States Marine Corps, at the time known as the Continental Marines. So there you have it. We have a ragtag army, a bunch of Marines, and a ragtag piecemeal Navy. And we're about to take on the British Empire, who had spent the past hundred years fighting across five different continents. If that doesn't give you an idea of the odds, or just how much the cause of liberty meant to these men, then I don't know what to tell you. However, it's going to be a long uphill struggle from here, because the next two years are not going to be kind to our heroes. At the end of 1775, the British repulse an attack by Continental Army Generals Richard Montgomery and Benedict Arnold at the Battle of Quebec. Norfolk is burned on the 1st of January, New Year's Day. There's an assassination attempt on General Washington. And on July 3rd, the largest assembly of British naval fleet in history commences off the coast of Staten Island in Brooklyn. It is the largest military invasion to ever go across the sea to New York and it will culminate into the largest attack on New York until September 11th 2001. However on the days bracketing this event the Second Continental Congress on July 2nd enacts a resolution declaring independence from the British Empire and then approves it on July 4th with their United States Declaration of Independence. Our most sacred historical document second only to our Constitution. However, the time for celebration of that event will come later because shortly after, on August 27, 1776, the Battle of Long Island takes place, also known as the Battle of Brooklyn and the Battle of Brooklyn Heights. And this was a devastating defeat for us at the time. So for context, after we drove the British out of Boston, Washington, he takes his troops to basically Brooklyn, New York, because he knows that the Port of New York would be a very strategic place for the Royal Navy. He knows that if they can get control of that port, they can effectively split the colonies in half and gain an upper hand in the war. So in July, the British, under the command of General William Howe, 
lands a few miles across the harbor on the sparsely populated Staten Island, where they were reinforced by a fleet of ships in lower New York Bay over the next month and a half, bringing the total force up to 32,000 troops. So Washington, in response to this, he moves the bulk of his force to Manhattan because he believes that's going to be the first target. Now on August 21st, the British landed on the shores of Gravesons Bay in southwest Kings County across from the Narrows from Staten Island and more than a dozen miles south of the established East River crossings to Manhattan. So after five days of waiting, the British attacks the American defenses on the Guan Heights. Unknown to the Americans, however, Howe has brought his main army around the rear, and he attacks their flank. So the Americans, they panic. It results in a 20% casualty loss and capture rate. However, a stand by 400 Maryland and Delaware troops prevented greater losses. The remainder of the army retreats to their main defenses on Brooklyn Heights. So the British dig in for a siege. But however, on the night of August 29th, Hey, my birthday. Washington actually evacuates the entire army to Manhattan without the loss of supplies or a single life. And that was a brutal defeat for us because the British would hold New York City for the rest of the war. And could you imagine that in today's terms? Could you imagine if a foreign occupying army occupied New York today, what that would do to us? It would be devastating. I imagine it was devastating for them as well. However, he does get our men out of there, and they retreat into New Jersey and then into Pennsylvania. But at this point, we knew it was going to be a long and brutal war, and it would get even worse because then the British, they park their prison ships, their infamous prison ships, right in New York Harbor. And this is nothing short of a war crime because due to imprisonment, neglect, and basically them not even caring... Over 10,000 POWs die of disease, illness, malnutrition, and whatever else you can think of on those ships. And even more sadly, we would lose another great American hero and patriot on September 22nd, 1776, Nathan Hale. He was arrested, captured by the British, and executed as a spy. And as they stood there on the gallows... He said that his only regret was that he only had but one life to give for his country. He was a true patriot to the very end. And he is officially designated as the state hero of Connecticut to this very day. And throughout the end of 1776 and throughout most of 1777, we would see a back and forth. Wins and losses, wins and losses. We would win at the Battle of Trenton. However, we would later lose Fort Ticonderoga to the British once again. However, in October of 1777, there would be a turning point, the climax of the Saratoga campaign, the infamous battles of Saratoga. And for context, what was happening was this British general, um, General John Burgoyne, he was leading an invasion army of about 8,000 men towards um, Champlain Valley in upstate New York for down from Canada. He was going to meet up with this other British army. And through the genius of men like Gates and Arnold, they smashed those forces and forced them to surrender. It was considered the turning point in the war because up to this point, it was the most decisive victory of the Americans over the British. And why is this important? It's important because while this is going on, 
Two of our founding fathers are in France, John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, and they are trying to convince the French king to join the Americans as allies in this war. The French at this time had an empire that rivaled that of this British empire at the time, and we knew that if we could take the war to the seas, if we could have the French harassing the British all over the world, it would divert attention away and bring a quick end to this war. And once Franklin receives word that the battles of Saratoga were won, he knows that the French cannot say no to him at this point. So the French go all in. They supply us with troops. They supply us with guns. They supply us with ships. And the end game is now in sight. However, before we get to that point, we have to suffer through the infamous Winter Valley Forge. So in 1777, Congress fled Philadelphia to escape the British capture of the city. And after failing to retake Philadelphia, Washington leads a 12,000-man army into winter quarters at Valley Forge, located approximately 18 miles northwest of Philadelphia, or 29 kilometers. So they remained there from December 19, 1777 till June 19, 1778. And... This is during the time when a disastrous supply crisis would happen. So for context, there's no money for uniforms. There's no money for food. There's no money for really anything. These men are living in tents and in shacks without shoes. They're filthy. They're, some of them are running around naked. And to top it all off, a smallpox epidemic sweeps right through the camp. There's no sanitation, they're dying of disease, and a lot of them are threatening mutiny, and they're threatening to just pack up and go home because they're sick of it. Just to throw numbers out there, about 1,700 to 2,000 soldiers die from either disease or malnutrition. However, it's at Valley Forge where once again things start to turn around because a Prussian drill master named Baron Frederick von Steuben He's from Prussia. You know what they say about Prussia in history. Prussia wasn't a country. Prussia was an army with land. And the Prussians in the 17 and 1800s, they are some of the absolute best soldiers on the face of the planet. And they've got one in their camp, Baron von Steuben. Now, a lot of the reason why he was there was they believed that he was kind of kicked out of the Prussian forces in Prussia because of homosexuality. So he kind of just goes across to America and he ends up here at Valley Forge. So what he does is he drills the soldiers. He improves their battle formation techniques. He's teaching them how to march in step. He's forcing them to practice volley fire. And most critically, he teaches them the art of the bayonet which was critical at the time because when you're up against the British military or the French military at this time, it's not those musket balls you have to worry about. It's their skill with the bayonet. When you have a wall of soldiers coming at you with a freaking pike, you better learn how to fight back real quick. Now, when von Steuben gets there, they're a ragtag group of freezing, starving people who don't even have their camp organized properly, but he increases sanitation in the camp. He teaches them how to keep their weapons clean and dry. He makes them a cohesive unit and boosts morale against the troops. And furthermore, 
he has an elite squad of a hundred men that he trains rigorously and those men are told to go on and train another hundred men in the same way this is the start of what you would call basic training today and you could argue that he was the first real drill sergeant but the result is these guys that were at Valley Forge starving and freezing to death and threatening to mutiny, they leave Valley Forge as true professional soldiers. And with the French Alliance, they go on to give the British hell. And for the next six years, they dish out that hell. And countless wins and losses later, we finally arrive at the Battle of Yorktown. This was the infamous siege in which the Americans and the French would force the British to surrender. The siege was the last major land battle of the Rev War in North America and led to the surrender of Cornwallis and the capture of both him and his army. The Continental Army's victory at Yorktown is what finally prompted the British government to negotiate an end to this conflict. And in 1782, on February 27th, the British House of Commons votes against further war, informally recognizing the independence of America. And to be honest, it makes sense because after eight years of war and almost a decade and a half of just conflict and strife, what happens amongst the general populace is what's a common phenomenon known as war fatigue. The populace is just sick of hearing about it and sick of dealing with it and furthermore sick of paying for it with both money and lives. So essentially the war is lost in England as the general populace no longer backs it. However, the Yorktown surrender is not really the end of the war because news travels slowly in this age and there would still be several skirmishes and fights and battles for the next year almost going into 1783 the last skirmish of the conflict is said to have taken place at cedar bridge tavern in new jersey and that's on december 27 1782 after the british evacuate charleston and to be honest the british and their loyalist refugees wouldn't even leave new york until november 25th of 1783 and there was real animosity towards these loyalists. You know, their houses were being smashed in and burned down. They were being driven out of the city. So it was still a very violent time. However, it's in 1784 when the Treaty of Paris is finally ratified and we have our independence. And the job of building a nation can truly begin. A nation founded on the Enlightenment ideas of democracy. The idea that all men are created equal. The idea of liberty and justice and freedom. The idea that we don't bow before earthly kings and are not subject to unjust laws. That the common man has a say in his destiny. That we will not allow oppression, corruption, and tyranny to reign. And we will seek our freedom even if we have to take up arms and die for it. I think the founders said it best when they wrote... We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, 
and that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety, happiness, prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invents a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for the future security. And I think on that note, there's no better place to end it. Once again, this is Mike, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Urban Legends and Mythologies. This was the foundation myth of my country. It's a myth that, you know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding it. Historians and anthropologists and sociologists and stuff have been picking it apart for two centuries now and exposing hypocrisies and where we fail to live up to those ideas sometimes as a nation. But despite all the controversy and craziness, it's a fun story. It is our foundation myth of this country, and while we don't live up to those ideas, the whole point is we are a country that's constantly evolving and trying to work towards solving those ideas and no nation is perfect we're as flawed as any other nation and we have a long way to go before we ever reach those lofty ideas of equality and freedom but as humans we know that the only way to truly achieve something is through struggle and that's the whole point of america it's struggling to get what you want because if you don't struggle for it, if you don't work for it, if you don't fight for it, then what's the point? If it's just handed to you, you can't truly appreciate your accomplishments. And that's the whole point of the American dream, is to scratch and claw and fight your way to where you want to be in life, to achieve your goals. That way you can look back on your life and said, I did it. Me. By myself. No one else's help. It was me. That's the point of freedom and that idea that we can accomplish whatever we want if we just struggle and try and hell we might fail people fail every day but if we struggle and try and at least try to achieve it then we did more than just the guy who sat around and had everything handed to him in life but i guess that's just kind of a my little rant about how i feel about our mythology surrounding our country we are a hyper individualistic culture and we take everything to its most logical extreme but for us that is the fun of it we truly enjoy life in this country and if you want to continue enjoying life and have me continue enjoying life and continuing this podcast, feel free to support me, donate, all that fun stuff. You guys are awesome for doing that. You people that are following me now, that monthly thing that y'all do on Spotify, that 99 cents to 9.99 a month, that is really helping out the show. And if you're curious about where you can subscribe or donate or whatever, just go to the description link in this episode 
you'll see a link you'll it'll say support this podcast 99 cents up to 9.99 a month you can support it you can help me out i can create more of these episodes it'll actually allow me to free up more time to do more stuff on the back end like editing and design and some studio modifications but i thank you all for listening and supporting i'll see you in the next episode that is the season finale and trust me it is going to be awesome you're gonna love it also happy fourth of july